You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making the Franco-Prussian War, the Seven Years' War, of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon, the Crimean War, to When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, Dutch Revolt, to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, the July Crisis Anniversary Project, the Swedish Deluge, Britain goes to war, the 1916, to the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, remastered. This is the eighth and final part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the wars against the French, which originally aired over the 25th of July to the 5th of August 2012. Welcome back to the war for the last time. Last time we looked at the conflict-ridden situation of 1809. It was a year of important developments, as though French power reached its higher level, cracks were apparent on the perfect imperial edifice. Napoleon lost his first battle, the British were becoming more active, and Iberia was an open wound, which was worsened by Allied interference. At the same time, Russia seemed to be slipping out of Napoleon's sphere, amidst tensions in trade and the national interest, most notably in Poland. Whether Napoleon wanted to wage his most infamous campaign against his one-time ally or not became less relevant than the incredible contents of that war, which we will cover. So, I hope you guys really enjoy this last episode of the remastered look at the wars against the French. Thanks and enjoy. (laughs) 
Asia and Europe, saved by thee, proclaim. Invincible in war, thy deathless name. Now round thy brow the civic oak we twine, that every earthly glory may be thine. Inscription on the Wellington Testimonial in Phoenix Park, Dublin. Following years of polite, if difficult, cooperation after the 1807 Treaty of Tilsit, St. Petersburg had apparently begun to tire of French offences and the disadvantage which that peace had put them at. Moreover, the attitude of both Napoleon and Tsar Alexander changed dramatically over 1810, as George Hereford in his book, Napoleon's Invasion of Russia, explains. In diplomatic dignity, as well as straightforwardness, Alexander had the advantage. In replying to one of Napoleon's missives, complaining of movements of troops and other such measures as willfully aggressive, the Tsar presented a long list of similar proceedings on the French side, and asked if these were movements of peace. As time went on, Napoleon abandoned the useless farce of denying his own armaments, and he instead contented himself with declaring that if Alexander thought proper to negotiate with sword in hand, he must do the like. 1811 brought more tension to the fracturing alliance, as the Russian general staff began to develop a plan for conducting an offensive war which centred on attacking the Duchy of Warsaw. All the while, Alexander tried to gauge the likelihood of Austro-Prussian support, following their respective defeats in the previous years. Berlin and Vienna would only follow St. Petersburg's league, though, if Russia could mobilise enough power itself to duly challenge Napoleon. And while Napoleon was pondering the true intentions of his so-called mates, Prussian statesmen stayed up to date with Russian affairs and tried to persuade their Austrian peers to follow suit. Vienna would never challenge Napoleon again unless absolutely assured of Russian support, so Berlin's diplomats remained disappointed, since despite the many slights, Tsar Alexander actually hesitated from making the first move against France. By mid-1811, the Tsar did not yet believe that war was entirely unavoidable, and it wasn't until the middle of autumn that year that war seemed altogether guaranteed. The Tsar and his advisers believed that the best course of action was a defensive war to take advantage of the size of their vast nation, as Peter the Great had done before against the Swedes, and then capitalise on the exhausted enemy once it had exhausted all of its resources. Diplomatic ties were maintained with France, and Napoleon was regularly assured of the Tsar's firm friendship with him, but affairs had notably deteriorated as 1811 drew to a close. The year had been one of preparation, as both sides came to understand what the next phase of the Napoleonic Wars would entail. All the while, of course, London sought to partner up with St. Petersburg, offering beneficial trade deals and promises of naval support in the event that she waged a war against the French. Britain had also been busy chipping away at Napoleon's power base in Iberia, which, by 1811, had begun to damage the French position there. Let's investigate. Since April 1809, when Wellington had landed to lead the Anglo-Portuguese force, he had gradually met success while facing an enemy that was gradually being eaten away by the nature of the campaign. Napoleon spared little thought for Iberia at the time of the increasing tensions between him and Alexander. Perhaps he just feared a repeat of the last time he left for Spain and a coalition appeared out of his European allies to face him. Napoleon feared Alexander would be encouraged to act if he was not present in France, and while he likely recognised that the Spanish ulcer was sapping his resources of men and money, he also hoped his subordinates could turn the situation around, and that he wouldn't have to personally intervene himself. Such hopes appeared ill-founded though, as Wellesley spurred on the local commanders to act on their own initiative. 
Portugal was secured against France by July 1809, and Galicia was secured as a new front against the French soon after, with Napoleon's forces on the retreat and consistently harassed by Spanish guerrillas. Heavy fighting and the Junta's ambitions to take Madrid were foiled by an avid French defence, with the result that the Spanish Junta was in bad shape by the end of that year, even with the British presence in place. Spanish soldiers fought courageously, but repeatedly became frustrated at a British reluctance to commit more troops. Spanish disaster followed, as the Junta buckled under a French onslaught of 60,000 men. The Junta fled to Cadiz and dissolved itself, forming a five-man committee with the aim of reviving the old Spanish constitution and returning the old Spanish monarchy to power. These ambitions were offset by Joseph, Napoleon's brother, who by April 1810 had established his regime in French-occupied Spain. As the French retreated to Cadiz, some supported the French occupation due to the by now old principles of liberal revolution and reform, which seemed somehow alien to the military occupation that the Spanish now endured. A term was even devised for those Spanish that came to cooperate with the French, and be ready for another butchering, a francasado, literally meaning turned French. And these were the citizens of Spain which France relied upon to prop up Joseph's regime. They failed to take Cadiz, the last bastion of Patriot Spain, and with Wellesley reinforcing a fallback position near Lisbon, it seemed likely that the Anglo-Portuguese would move out again in late 1810. By now, Wellesley had technically come to possess the title of Viscount of Wellington, and thus acquires the more familiar name which history knows him for. Wellington wrote to the British Prime Minister Lord Liverpool in late 1809, as Portugal had been secured, and Spain seemed to be falling to the French, saying... From all I have learned of the state of the enemy's force at present in the peninsula, I am of the opinion that unless the Spanish armies should meet with misfortune, the enemy could not make an attack upon Portugal, and that if events in Spain should enable the enemy to make such an attack, the force at present in Portugal is able to defend that country. By the following year, as his reinforced lines were put to the test, Wellington wrote to Liverpool again on the French endurance in Portugal's desert-like conditions, writing, It is astonishing that the enemy have been able to remain in this country for so long, and it is an extraordinary instance of what a French army can do. It is a fact that they brought no provisions with them, and that they have not received a letter since they entered Portugal. With all our money and having in our favour the good inclinations of the country, I assure you that I could not maintain one division in the district in which they have maintained not less than 60,000 men and 20,000 animals, for more than two months. Whether Prime Minister Liverpool cared for Wellington's fanboy-like observations of the enemy is not clear, but Wellesley was able to hold back the French long enough for them to tire and for a French retreat from Portugal to become necessary in the end. With Iberia representing virtually the only open front and really bright spot for the Allies by this point, Napoleon's unwillingness to command there personally attests to his fear that his absence would have created intrigues both among the European powers and in Paris, as they had before. As successful as he had been, Napoleon perhaps accepted that his position as supreme French emperor was still far from secure. A stalemate ensued in Iberia, as Wellington opened 1811, determined to take the fight to France, while the French sought to hold on to the major cities. The tired policy of taking small towns, then moving to the bigger cities like Seville, remained Wellington's occupation for much of 1811, 
but he was constantly met with the French response, who fought him at every turn. The stalemate then continued into 1812, as France contributed a total of 350,000 men, with 200,000 used for supply, defence and border patrols. Wellington remained unable to dislodge the French, and he couldn't seem to capture any more major cities. While the French couldn't extinguish the Spanish resistance provided by the guerrillas, nor could they eject the British as they had before. With Wellington's position as secure as that of the French, and with neither side willing to give up in such a critical theatre, the stalemate looked set to continue into 1812, even as Napoleon's attentions were directed elsewhere. Prussia is worth remembering at this stage too, since Napoleon seems to have lost his diplomatic ability about the time he really needed it to hold his reluctant allies together. As I already mentioned, Prussia was searching for a way to fight France, looking to Austria and Russia on more than one occasion. But it was Napoleon's treatment of Prussia before invading Russia which really galvanised the population there. This is touched on by Hereford. He proposed that the existing treaty should be maintained, that Prussia should supply 20,000 soldiers, that he should have free passage across Prussia, and that he should have full liberty to make requisitions, payment for which was to be arranged for eventually. This was in fact far worse for Prussia than positive annexation by France, for Napoleon was seeking all the advantages that would accrue to him from the subjugation of Prussia, and also those derivable from leaving it formally independent. He got his way for the moment, and therefore missed his opportunity to stifle the rapidly growing military strength of Prussia, of which he had hardly a suspicion. Prussia was experiencing its first whiffs of patriotism which had blown over from Iberia. The struggle of the Spanish and Portuguese inspired the Prussians, as it did the Austrians, and when Napoleon sent a demand to Prussia in February 1812 for an offensive alliance against a Russian empire that Napoleon believed was far more capable of waging war than she actually was, he crossed the line yet again. Historians tend to see a change in Napoleon's character by this point, as the old patience and tact with which he instructed his diplomats act with abroad had all but vanished. Napoleon was now making demands of Prussia which would only hasten a humiliation for that country, in the minds of her ministers, which were together far more active at galvanising the population than the Prussian king, Frederick William III, had been. The repeated accession to Napoleon's demands would only further degrade Prussian prestige, and thus, in the minds of Prussian statesmen, they had to be fiercely resisted. So, none of Napoleon's military genius had truly gone, but his sense of diplomatic skill had all but evaporated. Where he should have tiptoed around Berlin, making as few demands and as little noise there as possible, considering how important the state would become if an invasion of Russia took place, Napoleon engaged in heavy-handed diplomacy, making harsh demands and completely ignoring Prussian concerns. Such a policy would only light a fire under the Prussians, whose army by 1811 had steadily grown since its loss at Jena four years before. On the 14th of March 1812, Napoleon signed a more lenient treaty with Austria. Austria at this time was in an unusual position. Of course, she, like Prussia, wished for revenge and saw that the chance of success in a renewed war would be greatest when Napoleon was away in Russia, but Napoleon saw this too. He was far more willing to treat Austria like a great power and accept her concerns due to the danger she could pose him while he was away. Napoleon's goals in the war with Russia were believed to have been the complete restoration of Poland to its 16th century level of size and importance, and the Austrians believed that they could accept this. Though Galicia would have to be given to this 
new Polish state, promises by Napoleon to give back the Adriatic and Illyrian territories eased the potential grievances there, and Napoleon believed that this solved the Austrian problem. But Napoleon was likely blinded by his belief in the closeness of France and Austria due to the marital bonds between the two countries. What Napoleon failed to understand was that no amount of marriage could ever cover up the grievances of Austria, or that she was still willing, somehow, like his other previous enemies, to turn on France whenever she got the opportunity, in spite of whatever she might have assured France of publicly. The outbreak of war came relatively quickly. Napoleon's refusal to budge on the Polish question and his own insistence on enforcing the continental system led to a breakdown in communications between Russia and France and made it easier during this silence for suspect moves to escalate the already existing tensions. Napoleon moved his Grand Armée across the peoples he had subjected in Europe all the way up to the Russian border before descending into Russia. He had named the war the Second Polish War so as to galvanise the support of the Poles and he spoke to them while in their duchy on the 22nd of June, 1812, saying, Soldiers, the Second War of Poland has started. The first finished in Tilsit. In Tilsit, Russia swore eternal alliance with France and war with England. It violates its oath today. Russia is pulled by its fate. Its destinies must be achieved. Does it thus believe us degenerated? Then let us go ahead. Let us pass Neiman River. Carry the war on its territory. The Second War of Poland will be glorious with the French armies like the first one. Facing Napoleon's roughly 690,000 man multinational army was the partially mobilised Russian army of 175,000 men. Russia had many more men to throw at Napoleon, but it was its other weapons, that of scorched earth and the Russian winter, which proved more effective than any Russian army. The story of the French invasion of Russia is an example of history repeating itself. In 1709, Charles XII of Sweden lost the critical battle of Poltava to a Russian army that had been luring him deeper and deeper into their scorched lands. Perhaps more infamously, on the 22nd of June 1941, Hitler's Nazi Germany would throw three million men into Russia's vast expanses, only to face the exact same tactics as Charles XII and, in 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte. Initially, as everyone else tended to do, Napoleon started off strong, fighting some skirmishes with those Russian armies which had been left to slow him down. Napoleon has been criticised for his time-wasting during this campaign, but by August he was very close to reaching Moscow. The Russian generals Barclay and Bagration disagreed about strategy, and Barclay was eventually replaced by Kotazov when he refused to give battle. Kotazov realised upon taking his place that Barclay had pretty much had the right idea, though, and he resisted the foolhardy calls from the Russian nobility and populace to fight a pitched battle. Of course, because this was exactly what Napoleon was looking for. However, a pitched battle was eventually fought, the Battle of Borodino on the 7th of September 1812, but this battle was not the usual Napoleonic masterclass. It was instead a slaughter on both sides, a bloody, vicious, atrocious slaughter. Napoleon won the day, but he did not pursue the vulnerable Russians, fearing a counter-attack or even a trap. As a result, he lost the initiative and allowed the Russian enemy to escape. Though the carnage on both sides in the Battle of Borodino did not suggest a total French allied triumph, the result of the battle was that Moscow was practically open to Napoleon. 
Contrary to the mainstream historical record, though, it wasn't Napoleon that burned Moscow down. Instead, it was the natural result of panicked evacuation, soldiers lighting cooking fires, carrying out looting, and the presence of so many wooden houses and so much tinder and so much fuel. The idea that Napoleon burned Moscow is a misconception which has mostly been righted today. Napoleon was certainly displeased with the scene that greeted him at Moscow, especially because he had expected a delegation to greet him from the city and talk terms he had expected. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Shelter and provisions within Moscow, and he had expected the Russians to be eager for peace, because, well, he was capturing the spiritual heart of their country. But it was part of the overall strategy of the Russian High Command to leave nothing anywhere for Napoleon to use, and this included Moscow itself. Napoleon was always made to feel like he was on the run, as his army frequently ran out of supplies and rarely slept indoors for the entire campaign. This was especially problematic when winter weather set in, and soldiers froze to death in their unprotected thousands. It was then that Napoleon began his long retreat in October, leaving behind the husk of Moscow and perhaps his plans of total victory, having already lost a war whose nature he never understood, to an enemy whose psychology he could not overcome. He was faced with Russian attacks the entire way, and was then faced with the prospect of returning through the same land on which the Battle of Borodino had been fought. Having to pass the now rotting and bloated bodies of their comrades would have been immensely demoralising for the perhaps now less grand, Grand Armée. And if you add this to the deteriorating weather and the increase in Russian attacks, then it's no wonder so many soldiers died or deserted. Many would face a gruesome fate at the hands of the Russian peasantry, who began to commit tit-for-tat atrocities which came to characterise the latter stages of the campaign. Less than half of the Grand Armée's soldiers were French and had been pressed into French service against their will mostly out of the terms that Napoleon had enforced on his German and otherwise rivals. 
Many would flee or willingly betray Napoleon when they got the chance, particularly when the winds of fortune began to blow in favour of Russia. The collapse of the French position is best demonstrated at the Battle of Baratsina in modern-day Belarus on the 29th of November 1812, when a river crossing turned into a bloodbath after panic and disorder gripped the retreating Napoleonic army, as the rush to get across the river and away from the Russians caused a breakdown in the army's ability to fight, while the bridge crossings broke repeatedly and sent many soldiers into an icy end. Around this time Napoleon received word, just as he had feared, that a general Claude de Mallette had attempted a coup back in Paris, and he left his troops under the command of Murat while he hurried back home. Napoleon's army of 690,000 men returned to Poland with an army of just 110,000 frostbitten and demoralised troops. Napoleon's position was no longer secure in France, as the sharks circled to oust him out of pure ambition, just as his military position in Europe reinforced by so many crushing victories, now appeared in jeopardy after a single defeat. As Napoleon restored order back home, the new year of 1813 presented itself as a critical one for the French Emperor's regime and his conquests. It was beginning to look like the year when the band would go on tour for one more time and form the sixth coalition to take down Napoleonic France once and for all. Thus the sixth coalition began to form up. It began with Prussia, who signed the Convention of Torogon, a truce with Russia, on the 30th of September 1812. Prussian ministers then transformed this truce with the Treaty of Calise on the 28th of February 1813, which formalised that treaty into an alliance with Russia to be used against Napoleon. Britain was working hard too, and Sweden's support was secured when she declared war against France on the 3rd of March 1813. The war in Iberia was entering its final phases now, as the British, Portuguese and Spanish armies were gaining ground and advancing towards the Pyrenees, which of course threatened France from the south. Napoleon saw the Sixth Coalition as the greatest threat to France yet, so he mobilised yet more men to advance into Germany. He created an army 400,000 strong to match the gigantic Allied forces, and these clashed in the battles of Lutzen and Bautzen on the 2nd and 20th of May respectively which saw heavy losses incurred on both sides. It should be added that both battles were actually French victories, and this suggested that Napoleon's end was not, in fact, in sight, though the sheer numbers of soldiers present at the fighting was staggering, 250,000 men by some counts, and this suggested that the sheer weight of numbers set against France had the potential in the end to become overwhelming. A truce was negotiated to make up for the nearly quarter of a million men which both sides had lost by the 4th of June, and this continental truce lasted until the 13th of August 1813. During that time of the truce, Britain maintained its push through Iberia, a task made far easier by the diverting of French forces from Madrid to defend the homeland. Worst of all for Napoleon, Austria was persuaded to throw her lot in with the 6th Coalition, a decision which perplexed and deeply offended Napoleon, since, after all, he was still married to Marie-Louise, the daughter of the Archduke Charles of Austria. Small-scale battles followed the renewal of hostilities, but the real game-changer occurred at Leipzig in the so-called Battle of Nations on the 19th of October 1813. It was in this battle that the nations of Europe finally emerged victorious against Napoleon's France, in the largest land battle seen in living memory. 
With this defeat, Napoleon must have known it was over, but he still defended France for the next few months with a remarkable sense of courage, and he tried in vain to get a peace which favoured France and his position as emperor. He had previously rejected an offer from Austria where Napoleon would remain as emperor but relinquish his spoils and return France to its 1799 borders. As this had been offered in May 1813, when French defeat seemed unlikely amidst the great victories. By late 1813 though, Napoleon was to become painfully aware of the fact that the coalition did not want him in any position of power in France. It was from mid-1813 that the request for the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy in France began to emerge as a war demand. Though on paper it seemed short-sighted, and could have been used as a stick to inspire the French people to fight for their still-beloved emperor, France by this point was breaking apart from so many years of war, and only someone with the force of personality like Napoleon could hope to even hold it together. 1813 then represented the turning of the tide for the French, as the Sixth Coalition took form and the Spanish ulcer reached its logical conclusion, with French forces virtually expelled by the end of 1812 from Iberia, following the stunning Anglo-Portuguese victory at the Battle of Salamanca on the 22nd of July that year, where Wellington established his legend and the capture of Madrid in August was the result. Around the same time, in preparation for a counter-attack, the French abandoned their siege of Cadiz, which had been over two years in the making, and prepared to push Wellington back as they had before. Meanwhile, with the Grand Armée disintegrating, Napoleon had been forced to move French armies out of their former bastions in Austria, Prussia, and the Duchy of Warsaw, leaving those regions essentially to strike out on their own. Officially, they were still bound by treaty to Napoleon by late 1812, but as we have seen with the immediate threat gone, the formerly defeated continental powers set themselves the task of reforming their opposition to the French Emperor. The Spanish were an important cog in this machine, and at the Battle of Vittoria on the 21st of June 1813, British, Spanish and Portuguese forces, numbering roughly 57,000 men, defeated French forces of roughly the same size, but all was not rosy for the Allies despite this victory. With the Eastern powers apparently coming together for another coalition, London wanted to be certain it could count on Spain. By mid-1813, much of North Spain was still under French occupation, and although Wellington's victories had been impressive, desertion in the Allied armies was still rife, and unseasonably wet weather made communications and travel, and thus much progress, quite difficult. Under such circumstances, Wellington feared the outcome of a French counter-attack, the Iberian theatre, as you've by now surely noticed, was characterised by attack, counter-attack, ground lost and ground gained by both sides. Since the campaign had begun all the way back in autumn 1808, the false finishes, close victories and major reversals understandably had Wellington on edge. He had been sure of victory before in the region, only to be pushed back time and again. Now with Napoleon on the retreat, he couldn't afford to look weak, and so Napoleon would accept nothing less than a stringent defence of the Spanish position. Wellington's suspicions proved correct then when a last-ditch French counter-attack, the so-called Battle of the Pyrenees, was made, achieving victory against the beleaguered and diseased allies in the Battle of Maya and the Battle of Roncesvalles in July. In July 1813. Yet any sense of French momentum was halted when the Allies held the important defensive line in the Battle of Sororan on the 28th of July, 
which meant that the French were essentially unable to break through and re-establish their control over the entirety of Spain. With their advance running out of steam, Wellington advanced towards the formidable initial French defences along the border with Spain, and through a series of daring and costly climbs against hostile fire, achieved what Napoleon had believed impossible. As Napoleon's subordinates abandoned their positions on their way back to France, Wellington consolidated his position by capturing important Spanish cities such as Fuentarabia, San Sebastian and Pamplona by the end of October. Though he had made great progress in 1813 and only Catalonia truly stood in the way of an allied invasion of France, Wellington knew that they had merely broken through the French defences, but they had yet to conquer the extent of them. Through a series of interlocking fortress lines extending right up to the Pyrenees, France had hoped to secure its borders against any invasion from the south. You could see it in a way like a Napoleonic Maginot line. Unlike Nazi Germany in 1940, Wellington would not have the luxury of avoiding one of the final barriers that protected France. With the Sixth Coalition now eager for British advances, following their victory in the Battle of Leipzig around this time on the 19th of October, Wellington felt the pressure. He would attack the Pyrenees head-on. The Battle of Nivelle saw Wellington attack across the fortified French line, betrayed by the River Nive, which flowed through French Basque territory, which itself straddled the Franco-Spanish border. The battle was won when Wellington's aggressive tactics split the defending French in half, and rather than be cut off, the French marshal ordered a retreat back into France in mid-November 1813. By the following March, in 1814, Wellington had crossed the Pyrenees into France. At this stage, Wellington's beleaguered but no doubt experienced troops had achieved a remarkable feat. Through his own endurance, good luck, tenacity and tactical skill, it has to be said, Wellington had turned the Spanish ulcer into a theatre of critical importance, which Napoleon never paid enough mind to, only realising his mistake when he could no longer afford to do anything about it. With Wellington coming from the south and 6th Coalition forces approaching France from the north and east, Paris surrendered to the Allies in late March 1814. With confidence in the capital gone and many of its key figures abandoning his regime, Napoleon held out for as long as he could. Displaying his trademark genius in the so-called Six Days campaign in mid-February of that year, where he achieved a series of impressive victories in spite of the disadvantages, but by that stage the writing was on the wall. Napoleon acknowledged defeat and he abdicated his position as Emperor of the French on the 4th of April 1814. Those small-scale military actions still occurred in parts of Denmark and the Netherlands. With their work apparently done, the coalition celebrated the official end of the wars in June, with jubilant crowds in London. Napoleon, it was said, had been exiled to the island of Elba, and Louis XVIII had been restored. The Treaty of Fontainebleau was signed on the 11th of April and ratified by Napoleon himself on the 13th of April, 1814. Napoleon, it seemed, had bowed to the inevitable by the 6th of April, and had declared in his notice of resignation that, the Allied powers, having declared that the Emperor Napoleon is the sole obstacle to the re-establishment of a general peace in Europe, the Emperor Napoleon, faithful to his oath, declares that he renounces for himself and his heirs the throne of France and Italy, and that there is no personal sacrifice, not even that of life itself, which he is not willing to make for the interests of France. The coalition forces agreed to redraw the map of Europe in the Congress of Vienna, which included, among other resolutions, 
the return of the Duchy of Warsaw to Russia, the creation of a German confederation of 38 states from the original 360, and with the Austrian Archduke as president. The creation of the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, made from the North and South Netherlands, intended really to serve as a bulwark against future French moves on the map of Europe, and the handing of parts of Saxony, Poland and Westphalia to Prussia, and the condemnation, of course, of the slave trade. As we, of course, now know, the peace would not last. After leaving his exile in Elba on the 26th of February 1815, Napoleon would march into Paris on the 20th of March, with the support of the majority of the population. It is widely believed that Napoleon did not intend to start another war, but the nations of Europe could not stand to see him back in power in France, and infamously they declared war not on France, but on Napoleon himself on the 13th of March 1815, as the Congress of Vienna scrambled to defend the peace it was attempting to develop. Each state promised 150,000 troops for the coming battle to defeat Napoleon once and for all, and Napoleon moved to mobilise the French against this threat, initially securing impressive victories, but eventually succumbing to the weight of numbers at the Battle of Waterloo, when Wellington's beleaguered British soldiers were reinforced by the returning Prussians. The addition of the Prussians proved the difference, and Napoleon watched in horror as his Imperial Guard retreated under the fire of a previously hidden British contingent of riflemen, which shattered his army and resulted in a full-scale retreat. So, Napoleon was forced to abdicate again as France bowed to the Allies, though this time to the island of St. Helena, a rugged and undesirable place thousands of miles from civilization. Too dangerous to the European peace or its old ideas, Napoleon was sentenced to die in exile, away from his family and his country, whose people he had brought to heights nobody had ever imagined possible. He would be accompanied by his most loyal followers into the final years of his life, when he must have spent much time wondering at what might have been, and no doubt missed his family members terribly, who were, it has to be said, forbidden from seeing him. He would die on the 5th of May, 1821. Napoleon had left behind a Europe that learned a lesson and wanted to learn more. The French Revolution, that catalyst for everything which had followed since and seemed so distant to the nations negotiating in Vienna in 1815, had proved the difficulty in controlling radical political change, as the desire for people power had escalated to such frightening levels that it changed the face of Europe forever. Those that negotiated in Vienna promised to prevent such radical change from threatening the peaceful status quo of Europe again, but in reality it was already far too late for that. The Napoleonic Code had brought with it ideas too revolutionary to be forgotten and too significant to be reversed. From then on, Europe before Napoleon was the old order, and now Europe was looking ahead to the new century, with peace on the continent for the first time in 20 years. The perceived glory of war, an idea for so long associated with the European identity, seemed to have been removed from the collective consciousness, at least temporarily. The human losses and scale of the disasters which had befallen the continent also ushered in a new century, the 19th. Its beginning meant great things for Europeans, though no power would long forget that they now lived in Napoleon Bonaparte's shadow.
We'd need another series of podcasts to properly do a figure like Napoleon Bonaparte justice, but I at least feel more satisfied than I did when I attempted to unpack Napoleon and the French Revolution last time. Hopefully you feel like it's a more detailed and involved journey, though I do accept that my treatment was more superficial than I now tend to adopt. For the sake of keeping the story of Napoleon in line with this remastered project, there simply wasn't enough time to go more in-depth on the period. As it stands now, a great number of podcasts are out there that give a better analysis of the era than I could, since Napoleon is, after all, their primary focus. With this, I wanted to give you my take of Napoleon without going as deep as many other history podcasters. It should be added that I'm not a Napoleonic podcaster, and that when I did this special five years ago, it wasn't to tell you all about the guy that there is to know, or everything about the era that he was involved or lived in. Instead, it was to tell a story, a long arc of a story that Napoleon formed a significant part of. This story was taken up and continued during my first year of podcasting, and so it continues in this remastered series. So I hope you'll stick with us for the rest of this remastered project. So yeah, that's Napoleon, hopefully done justice at last. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the wars against the French. Thanks for listening, and yes, I'll be seeing you all very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.